Father, we thank You for this time together this morning and we invite You to speak to us. Open Your Word so that we might have understanding and clarity. And may You be praised and glorified. We ask all these things according to Your riches and glory through Christ Jesus. Amen. As I stated earlier, we're going to be looking at the book of Revelation, but I, I want to read just a brief passage to you from the book of Acts about the church of Ephesus here in just a moment, uh, found in Acts chapter 19, just to give you a little bit of background. Matter of fact, uh, as we look at this today, if, if I were to ask you, what are some of the longest and greatest sermons that Jesus preached that we have recorded, what would you say? Uh, you may use the term discourse if you like, but basically Jesus had several uh, almost full-length sermons that he preached. Of course, the most popular one would be, for many people, certainly the one that I think of first when you say, tell me a sermon of Jesus, would be the Sermon on the Mount uh, found in Matthew. And it's an excellent place to start if you're a believer, if you're going to start reading the Bible, because it just kind of gives you a, a whole barrage of different issues that Jesus covers in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, then there's several other places, the Olivet Discourse, uh, there is uh, Matthew 24 and 25. There, there are several places that, that Jesus preaches a sermon, so to speak, and that uh, is detailed and gives us great information to live by. But one of the most vivid pictures, I would say outside of the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus gives us for the church specifically is found in Revelation 2 and 3. It's, it's, it's actually a sermon. It's a message. It's a discourse that Jesus himself gives to us. And in that discourse, Jesus is going to tell us, particularly in regards to the church, here are the things that I hate and here are the things that I love. Here's what I love about you guys and here's what just really hacks me off. Here are the things that I just detest. And so as we look at this letter today, recognize that these are the words of Jesus given to the Apostle John, recorded uh, for all of Christendom. And it lets us know what he loves and what he hates. Now, he does that with the first church. He gives us this picture, the church of Ephesus. And Ephesus is no small church indeed. It, it is a magnificent church. It has a huge history. It is a flagship church. Uh, of probably of Christendom, certainly of Asia Minor, which is now called Turkey. And Ephesus is a, a major metropolitan city. It, it is the seaport in which um, almost all of the commerce flows into Asia Minor. So it is a very uh, cultural city. Matter of fact, they, they, have, a, they, they have a religion uh, in which they worship Diana. Um, and it is, a, it is, matter of fact, a huge temple is there. This huge statue of Diana is there. Uh, it, is a, it is great in commerce, great in culture. There's a lot going on in Ephesus. And Paul is able to have a church started here in Ephesus. And through a series of events, it, it really thrives. It, it's the largest church in Asia Minor. It was kind of the first church. You know, I grew up in a small community, and, and uh, the largest church was First Baptist Church there in our county seat. You know, and, and that was the church everybody knew about. 
And, uh, and we thought it was so big, it ran like almost 500 people. We just thought that was huge, you know, because the little church I was going to, if we had 100 on a Sunday, we're going, holy cow, there are people here I don't know their names. You know what I mean? It, it was that kind of deal. Well, this was the first church. And so it had a significant reputation and uh, a lot of things that occurred there. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul probably called this his home church. Uh, Timothy, uh, pastors here for a while. Uh, he would call it his home church. Probably even John thinks of the church of Ephesus at his home, as his home church. There are more letters written about the church of Ephesus than any other church we have in Scripture. Certainly the book of Ephesians was written to the church at Ephesus. Uh, we see in Revelation, this is given specifically for the church of Ephesus. It starts off right here in chapter 2. Um, we know that First, Second, and Third John probably circulated, as well as Colossians through here. And then we're going to read right now in Acts chapter 19 and 20, dealing with the area of Ephesus and the church of Ephesus. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me there to Acts chapter 19. And we're going to do this just so we have a little bit of background and understanding about uh, the great things and how significant the church of Ephesus was. The Bible says in Acts chapter 19, beginning with the 8th verse, Luke is recording here what Paul about Paul. And Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate and they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them and he took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, which was uh, kind of a... Uh, an open forum college, uh, kind of a school there, and a respected school at, at that. And this went on for two years, and so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So Paul has been uh, successful, at least, in proclaiming the word of the Lord. The disciples are proclaiming the word of the Lord, and in Ephesus, everyone's hearing about it. And then we drop down here to verse 17. And when this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. And many of those believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. Another of them practiced sorcery and brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. The scrolls were basically their books. So they bring their, they bring their books on sorcery and evil and witchcraft, and they bring their scrolls together and they burn them. And when they calculated the value of all these books, the total becomes 50,000 pieces of silver. And that's an enormous amount uh, of, of money at this point. And in that way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So this is what's occurring. Matter of fact, if we kept reading, and I would encourage you maybe to read the background later in 19 and 20. If you keep, keep reading, you hear about a, a Demetrius, this silversmith, who, who recognizes, look... <clears throat> This religion, this uh, this conversion, this transformation that's happening in, in our city is costing me money. Because one of the things that I do is I build idols and I build trinkets uh, for Diana. And, and, and he even says the worship of, Di of Diana is going to be greatly effective if we don't put a stop to this. So he brings all the silversmith together and because it's economically costing because now people aren't worshiping the false gods and they're not buying the false idols and the trinkets that go with it. And so they decide, well, we've got to do something about it. I mean, Paul, uh, here in Ephesus, the church itself is having a major impact on the city and upon the area. And some people are radically having their lives changed. They're radically being converted. And other people are aggravated about it, which often happens when the Spirit of God falls 
Well, this is the type of church that we're talking about. So turn back with me to Revelation chapter 2. Now that you have a little bit of context uh, about this city, about this church, uh, Jesus is going to give some compliments to the church of Ephesus. It's going to say, he's going to say, look, you've done some great things in the past. Some great things. And I, I want to encourage you and I want to recognize that. You've worked really hard. You've had sound doctrine. And you've suffered. You've suffered well. And I want you to know I recognize that. Let's pick up right there. Uh, matter of fact, at the, the end of chapter 1, I want to go ahead and read that last verse just because some, just so you don't get confused. But at the end of verse, at the last section, the last line of chapter 1 says this. It says, the seven stars are the angels and the, se- and the seven churches uh, are the lampstands. Okay, so the seven stars... Uh, messenger is the is the word that's used there, and we uh, I interpret that to be the pastor, the senior leader of the church. So that's what he's talking about here, and that's what most scholars, conservative scholars, would agree that he's talking about pastors here or the senior leader of that particular church, and then the lampstands are churches. So Jesus defines that for us. He says to the angel, to the pastor of the church of Ephesus. Some some still believe that's Timothy. We're not certain, uh, but to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars or the seven pastors in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. That anytime you see that word, the right hand, the right hand of God, the right hand of Christ, he's talking about the authority. He's talking about the power. He's talking about the security. And he says, I hold those seven pastors in my right hand. And by incidentally, I don't believe that this is meant to be an exhaustive list of the churches. This is a letter that certainly would have gone to more than just those seven churches. Uh, but it is a letter that certainly went to these seven specific churches. But he's talking also a message that we would, they would understand today and a message for us today as well. He continues here and he says, I know your deeds, the omniscient God of the universe, I know of your deeds. I want you to know I've seen the great things that you've done. Your hard work, your toil, literally, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and found them false. First John chapter 4, verse 1 tells us to test the spirits to see whether they be of God or not. And it appears that the church of Ephesus was doing that. When doctrine was not correct, when uh, people were trying to take the church in a direction contrary to that which Christ had taught, they were quick to rein that in and to address the issue. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. You've persevered and endured hardship. You've suffered well, and you've not quit. Matter of fact, at the end, one of my favorite verses in Scripture is uh, Galatians 6, 9. Uh, in due time, you will reap the harvest of plenty if you do not grow weary, if you do not quit. He's talking about if you don't quit. And he's encouraging, he's affirming the church of Ephesus saying, you have not quit. Things have been difficult, things have been hard, and you've not quit. Now, I want to encourage you. One of the marks of a true church, of a church, of a believer who who uh, is following Christ, is that they don't quit when things get tough, when things don't go their way. 
you know, it, it's it's a sad picture. Today we we're so you know. You know, I, I I just really totally disapprove of that song that was saying. I, I just don't know that I'm coming back. I'm, I'm just not going to go to church anymore. I don't like the way they do communion. I, I don't like what he said. That was offensive. I, I'll tell you what, I'm 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 a man or a woman or whatever it was that he said. I, I just personally take offense to that. I'm I'm quitting. That's for you, and that's for me. Doesn't feel good, does it? But uh, sometimes we get so nitty. And what you what you've just defined there is that Christ, you're not my first love. This is about me. I'm my first love, and if I don't feel good, and I don't like it, I quit. And matter of fact, there's a lot of evidence in the Scripture that the real believer, this old doctrine called the perseverance of the saints, that those who truly love the Lord doesn't mean that you won't sin and you won't have difficulty, but they don't quit. They don't stop. They don't say, I, I just can't do this anymore. I'm just not going to do it anymore. I'll just stay home and I'll worship my house. I'll worship in Bedside Baptist or wherever it is you're going to worship. I'm going to quit. I'm not, doing, I'm not praying right now. I, I remember talking to people. I talked to a guy one time. He goes, yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of not doing the whole Christian thing. Or I'm not praying. I'm not reading my Bible. I'm kind of taking a break. Because I'm just thinking, you know, you know, sometimes you just need to take a break. How does that work for your job, by the way, when you do that? You know, it's not going for a while. Sorry, boss. <laughs> That's called fired is what it's called. So, nevertheless, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. He said, you know what? You've done a lot of great things. You've worked hard. You've suffered well. But yet, we got a problem here. Just like Matthew and Jennifer were sharing while ago. <clears throat> Boy, they were doing the stuff. They were being great parents. Uh, they were doing their work. They were doing all the things uh, that were would appear on the outside to make things happen and to be correct. But their love had completely gone for one another. And they were done. And basically, Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to be done using you if you don't have a love for me. If this isn't all pouring out of love. You know, Jonathan Edwards wrote a great sermon, uh, wrote a great book, actually, uh, affections of the heart. And, he's, and one of the ways that, uh, matter of fact, he says this, he says, can a man, um, can a man pray and not love God? Absolutely. Can a man read his Bible and not love God? Can a man share his faith and not love God? Can a man give? Can a man work? Can a man serve? Can he do all those things and not love Christ, not really know Christ? Absolutely. Well, how do you know then? This is how you know. That you love the things that God loves. You love the kingdom. You love when you see people coming in the kingdom. That you love people more than your own little idiosyncrasies. That you want God to be glorified more than you want yourself to be noticed or things to go your way. When you love the things of God and you love the heart of God. Continues. He says this. He said, I've got this against you. You have forsaken your first love. And here's what I want you to do about it. First thing I want you to do is I want you to remember. I want you to remember the height from which you fall. I want you to remember what you were doing. Remember what was going on in chapter 19 and chapter 20 in the book of Acts? Remember how you were willing to take 
take your books and burn them. Remember how you're willing to stand up people and let them know, hey, I, I love Christ. How you're willing to worship even though it was costing you greatly. Remember how you wanted to just know the teachings of Christ. How you would seek Him in prayer. Remember when you were baptized. He said, I want you to remember. I want you to remember that time. I want you to remember where you were and where your heart was. He said, I want you to recognize how far you've fallen. And then here's what I want you to do. I want you to repent. I don't want you to say, well, look, what you know, we're, I'm at the best church. I mean, our church is getting a lot of missions. Look at all the missions. I mean, I'm talking like Timothy's out of here. Paul's out of here. I mean, there are lots of people going out. I mean, we are rocking as a church. That's where I go. Must be good. I must be good. Things are good. Matter of fact, I've given to that program. Matter of fact, I, I gave our first building program. Thank you very much. You know what I mean? You start thinking you've done a lot of good things. He said, you need to repent that attitude. Repent right now because you're missing it. You're missing it entirely. And do the things that you first did. What were the first things? When you were humbly asking, Jesus, take over my life. God, whatever you need, I'll give it. I'll share it. Lord, I want to know you. I want to study it. And I, I, I want to seek you. I want to be in communion with you in prayer. You know, one of the great, I think, evaluators of where we are as far as this, as it runs with our first love for Christ to me is, is our prayer and the, the things that we're praying about. I mean, it really, really is telling on who we are and where we are spiritually. When your prayers evolve in this, God, if you just please help me. Matter of fact, if you help my wife or you help my husband, you just do something, fix them. My kids, about, oh, God, you got to do something about them, too. And and then, God, you know, we need some more money, God. You're going to have to supply some more some more bucks somewhere. And, um, and and it all becomes, that's what all our prayers are. God, I need this and I need that. Thank you, God. God, I, I sure hope you're listening. Amen. And that's where our prayers evolve into, and it's two or three minutes. When's the last time you just had a time of worship where you said, God, I just want to thank you for all that you have given me. I want to recognize that all the good things that I have that come from your hand. When you pray, do you pray with a heart of thanksgiving? Or is it a heart of give me? Do it for me, God. Do this. I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. I am saying, how do you feel when someone just comes to you and they just always want something? They never affirm you. They never encourage you. They never recognize you know, it's called toddlers is what it's called. But nevertheless, some of us never grow out of it. This is what Jesus says. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Wow. And what, what, what did he just say earlier that the lampstand was? That was the church. It's the presence and the power of Christ in the church. Why is it that today in evangelical Christianity that we have nearly 24 churches that are closing every day? Every day! Unbelievable. And, I, you know, and we can go to other denominations. Uh, you know, in Southern Baptist, there's three churches closing every day. And you can, you can just kind of do the math as you go through and and people say, why do we even plant churches? I'll tell you why we plant churches, because churches are dying left and right. That's in the United States, by the way. Okay, we're not talking about Europe or Canada or somewhere. We're talking about the United States. And I don't know this for a fact, and this is not a time for us to be judgmental, but 
could it be the possibility that there's some good churches with good doctrine, but somehow they lose their love for Christ? I don't know if that's it. There, there are a multitude. There are other factors that certainly could occur. But we know that that's a possibility. And can I tell you that's a possibility for Rock Point? If it comes to the point where it's just all about us, it's just about us. We're good right here. It's about me. Me, me, me. That's always the first step of um, of a dissolvement of a relationship when you have to have your rights. It has to be your way. That's where you usually end in divorce. That's what Matthew and Jennifer are talking about when it starts coming to that place. Same thing is true in our church. When we stop recognizing it, it's about Him. It's about Jesus Christ being glorified and Him being worshipped and people coming to know Him. And when we make us and what we want primary, then we have become our own power. And basically we say, we don't need you, God. We've decided how we're going to do church. Do you know what my primary responsibility is? It's always funny what people think it is. Uh, I mean, certainly it's, it's to preach and to shepherd. But you know what really it is? It's to spiritually lead and to, and to make sure we stay on mission, which is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, which comes from the greatest commandment, and to make more and better followers of Christ. And we do that in our vision through receiving people, equipping people, impacting their lives, and sending them out. That's why I have a job. If I don't do those things, I shouldn't have a job. It comes down to what are we here for? To love God, to make more and better followers. It's scriptural. And Jesus said, first of all, you've got to love me, or I'm going to remove the lampstand from its place. Now, I want to tell you, I want to affirm you, you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We, we can't definitively say this is exactly what, what was happening with the Nicolaitans, and this is exactly who they are. Many scholars believe this is a kind of a more generic term that's used for a larger group of cults, if you want to call it that, uh, factions that had risen up in the church in an early Christianity, uh, some who were very Gnostic in nature. And what I mean by Gnostic, they believed that the material, this earth, this earth it's, itself was all evil, and certainly there couldn't be the God of the the great God of the universe didn't create this. There must have been another God that was involved, and He could not taint Himself. Which means, by the way, that they didn't believe that Jesus Christ was God because He was on this earth. So they certainly don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, it's deeper than that, but we can just stop right there and recognize that that was a false doctrine. It's a, and they sought to stomp that out. Don't let that uh, don't let that escalate. Don't let that occur within your church. And so they were certainly doing that. Others also would go as far as to say that uh, many of them were also uh, taking a license to sin because this is the material world. We can do whatever we want, so we can do it all under the name of grace. It's all about grace, and God has granted us grace. He's given us forgiveness and salvation. And uh, is in the spiritual world, we've got to connect esoterically with God there. But here on this on this earth, it really doesn't matter so much. Uh, we're just going to make sure we do it in our spirit time, but... How we live is, you know, that's all under grace anyway. And that's, that, isn't that the place that people abuse? There are those who abuse grace. I'll just use that word. They just make it cheap. I can do whatever I want. I accept Christ. It's all forgiven. And then there are those on the other side. And matter of fact, uh, also it's talked about in the book of Timothy. Uh, Paul talks about this. Those who um, have become legalists, basically. If you go back and you look in Timothy um, they were they were legalists. They were talking about all the things you had to do, not to marry and 
not to all these different, different lists of things that they shouldn't be doing, and they had become legalists. You know, and that always comes just snuffs out the love of Christ. Over here, I'm just going to abuse and cheapen the grace and the atonement of Christ. And over here, I'm going to make it about rules and regulations. I'm going to judge people. I'm, I'm going to start to have this spirit. Can you believe they're in our church? I can't believe they're even distant here. That, do you have any idea? Did you see who was there? Can you believe there comes somebody I'm talking to? I just think the pastor, they ought to go talk to them because I just can't believe that person even walks in here. That just, man, disgusts me. And what if that becomes the conversation? What if people begin to hear and that becomes your conversation about church? I think Christ just gets disgusted if that becomes primarily our discussions about church. If that's really on the topic, if that becomes on our lips. When we become judgmental, the two extremes. He continues on here and he says, He who has a, an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So, how do we lose our first love? Number one, we forget. Remember he said, remember, we forget. We forget what Christ has done. We forget how just significant, how monumental his sacrifice was. We just start to take it for granted. And we just become forgetful. We become forgetful about worship, about prayer, about our, our devotional life. We forget. Number two, pride sets in. It's always the great evil. I'll just go ahead and confess my most prevalent sin. I should have said that earlier. All of a sudden, everybody looks up. Anybody wants to look around now? Talk about your sin? I'm all ears. I probably ought to say that about three times in the sermon. Just make sure everybody opens their eyes at that point. But nevertheless, here it is. You ready? Doing the right things for the wrong reasons. Doing the right stuff. Kind of like Matthew was talking about. Doing the right stuff for the wrong reasons. It becomes just like that right there, pride. If I'm not careful, it really comes more about me than it becomes about the kingdom. And I, I just confess that to you. And I, you know, my two spiritual accountability partners—they know that about me. And um, so it's—it's it's something that I have to always be aware of. And I bet you do too. And that's what happened to the church at Ephesus. We're the biggest. Look what our church has done. Look how many missionaries we've sent out. Look at all what we're doing. I mean, we're—we're we're the church. I tell you, things are happening here. Good, good that I'm here too, by the way. You get prideful. And when you get there, you don't really need Christ. And your conscience becomes, as Paul says in Timothy as well, seared. That doesn't mean you don't have a conscience anymore. But it means that you're, you have for so long began to let things in and to classify things as okay by the way you act, your attitude, your spirit, kind of like what we were talking about, being legalistic or being all under free grace. You've been doing that so long that your conscience just gets seared and you don't. You just think you're right. I'm, I'm correct. And, and you just go on and you're not even convicted anymore. Or when you're convicted, you just, you're able to just completely brush it off, which always leads to idolatry. You begin to worship something else. Not literally you bow down and say, oh, great... Artemis or oh great Diana, that's not what you do. You begin to, your job becomes your idol. Money becomes your idol. Your favorite sport or your hobby becomes 
your idol. That's how we lose our first love. So what do we do to regain it? Matthew and Jennifer talked about how, you know, first of all, we just had to recognize our marriage was dead. We just had to confess that and just get real about it. It's dead, and, and what we're doing ain't working right now. And, um, you know, it's also the definition of insanity is doing the same thing you've always been doing and hoping for a different result. You know, just keep doing it. I don't know why things don't change. Well, number one, here's what you do. Take responsibility. Quit denying it. Quit blowing off. Quit thinking, I'll just keep going and something will just change. Take responsibility. It's just say, you know what, I'm going to take some responsibility. Regardless of what my spouse is doing, regardless of what the rest of my family, I'm going to take responsibility with my relationship with Christ. I'm not going to blame it on the pastor and the worship team, my Sunday school teacher, um, you know, the president or whoever it is that you want to blame it on. Okay? Take responsibility. Number two, confess. Confession. Confession. Confession is good for the soul. The Bible tells us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. James 5, 16 tells us, confess your faults one another, pray for one another that you may be healed. I'm not suggesting that you come up here and stand, I might do my confession time. That's not what I'm asking you. I am telling you there ought to be somebody that you can just get real with and confess. Jennifer and Matthew talked about, you know, there were a couple that we just told them, this is what's going on. And they began to pray for us and they began to pour into us. And, uh, Lord, we, we want to help you with that. Sometimes that's through a, a good counselor, if that's where you are, a good Christian counselor. And there are certainly uh, good Christian counselors that we can recommend to you. But confession. Number three, recommit yourself to Christ. And say, you know, God, I just want to recommit myself to you. You know, sometimes here we've done recommitments in, at our marriage. Sometimes people do recommitment ceremonies. Sometimes we just spiritually need to do that. We find ourselves, we've wandered so far away, we're so dry uh, we no longer spend time in His Word or in prayer. And it's just, I'm, I'm recommitting myself today. And I'm going to make a commitment of faith, not by feeling. What do I mean by that? A commitment of faith. Well, it's not just about when you feel it. You know, I don't feel like worshiping today. I don't feel like going to church. I don't feel like praying. I don't feel like studying Scripture. I don't feel like being good for that matter. I just don't feel like it today. Let me go back to my common metaphor. Try that at work. I don't feel like going. I'm going to go in about 1030 today. I'm going to take a two-hour lunch break, and I'm leaving early. I'm just going to keep going. I just don't feel like it. And where does that lead you? It leads you to unemployment is where it leads you. It leads you to zero income. But you recognize, you know what, I, if, if this is a job, it's not about what I feel. I'm going to have to make a commitment here. I'm going to get up when I don't feel like getting up, and I'm going to go to work. And I'm going to make calls, and I'm going to do sales, and I'm going to manage people I don't like, and I'm going to do, I'm going to smile with people who aggravate the mess out of me, because I got a commitment here, and I recognize that. The guy with you, I don't feel like it. It's commitment. Next, write down a plan of action. Say, this is what I'm going to do. I need to start. I need to get myself in a small group, or I need to commit to be in a Bible study, or I need to commit to pray with someone. I need to be in accountability. Whatever step. Take a step. Write it down and then take a step. Next, uh, you've you got to make God's Word an integral part of your life. Make God's Word. Have a specific time and a place that you're going to say, you know what, God, I'm going to read your Word. And if you need some something to go along with that, we have great devotionals out there for free. Just pick one up to help you get started. But make God's Word a part of your life. Accountability. Make yourself accountable to someone. Pray for a new heart and ask God, God, renew my heart each day. Establish a marker to help you remember. 
uh, a spiritual market. You know, one of the reasons that we, uh, we're going to have communion today, and one of the reasons we do that is for you to remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, for you to remember the atoning sacrifice of Christ. When we do baptism, uh, as we did last week, as people are baptized, it's a spiritual marker. My wedding ring, that's a marker of my commitment to my wife. A spiritual marker. Uh, you know, we've had those times where we've done marriage covenants. Spiritual markers. Now, I, I don't know what it is for you. Yeah, I mean, you may need to go get one of those little bands that says, I'm second. I, I don't know what it is. You know, a ring. A, I don't know. But sometimes, you know, like in my car, I've got a little rock. And sometimes you may you, you may get in my car and think, your car's a mess. you got like gravel in here. Uh, that little rock is a spiritual marker for me from about nine years ago. And last, give thanks in advance. Start to give thanks to Christ for what He's done for you. Start to give thanks for what He is doing and for what He will do in your life. You know, 2 Timothy 1.6 says, puts it this way, Therefore, I put thee in remembrance that you should stir up the gift of God which is in you. Stir up the gift of God which is in you. For most of us, a good way to understand is a stretch. I'm going to have to make a stretch in my life. Uh, you know, and for some of you, again, it might be time for you to get into your first Bible study. It, it, it might be to serve. It might be to give. I, I don't know, but you, you need to make a stretch in your faith. Because here's kind of where we are, most of us. I'll give you a little illustration here. From time to time, we find our life. I'm, I'm really excited about this illustration, by the way. I've got milk and chocolate. That's about as. That's about as good as it gets for me right there in the food department. Um, we come in and we, we trust Christ as our Savior. And this, this is our life. He's cleansed us. And then the power of the Holy Spirit comes into our life. and teaches us how to open tabs. And the power of the Holy Spirit is placed into our life. And what is... Paul say right there. Paul says, stir it up. Stretch yourself. See, this right here, it's just kind of sitting at the bottom. And this is probably a good picture of what some of our lives look like when we just do it on our own. And Christ is not our first love. Yeah, we accept Him, we know Him, but I'm just kind of stagnant. He says, stir it up. Stretch yourself. Set a plan of course of action and do it. Stir it up. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's good stuff there. So which one are you going to be? You plain vanilla? I don't do anything. I just show up. Sure are glad you saved me, Lord. Are you going to allow Him to stir you? Are you going to take some steps? That's really true. The aroma of Christ. I can smell the difference. I can smell the chocolate here. I can't even smell it. It's there, but I can't smell it. I can't taste it. I can't see it. That's the part that you play. What about you? Do you know Him today? Have you trusted Him as your Savior? If you're a believer, are you loving Him with your whole heart, soul, and mind? Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this time together. I thank You that while we're still sinners, you died for us. I pray right now, God, that you would um, stir.
speak to those who don't know you, that you draw them by the power of your spirit. And for those who do know you, Lord, I pray that you would convict them to stir their hearts, God, to return to their first love so that you might be glorified and praised. Lord, as we come into this time of communion, Lord, as we remember what you've done, we do so as an act of worship. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.